Welcome back to another episode of our brand new podcast, City Hall Pass, hosted by myself, the counsel to the mayor, Capel Longani. We created this forum, the first of its kind in New York City, to provide you, the general public, with a unique window into the problem-solving process at the highest levels of our city government, and to be able to share insights into key decisions as told by the trailblazing leaders who made them. And now I want to introduce my two guest hosts today, two women who are truly brilliant and inspire me every day, Best Chu and Kate Coughlin. Thanks, Capel. Happy to be here. This is Best Chu. I'm currently Chief of Staff to the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Hi, I'm Kate Coughlin, and I currently serve as Deputy Counsel for the Office of the Council to the Mayor. As I said in the Behind the Mic episode, I wanted this podcast to introduce New Yorkers to our best public servants, people who are both inspiring and brilliant. And nobody fits that bill more than our guest today, the Deputy Mayor for Administration and Chief of Staff to the Mayor, the great Emma Wolf. The last person I interviewed with before I got my job was Emma Wolf. And even then, the very first time I met her, I knew we would form a terrific partnership. Because while she's not a lawyer, she certainly thinks like one. Always prepared, fantastically creative, and adept at solving the most intractable problems this city is presented with. She's been featured in Crane's 40 Under 40. She's been referred to by the New York Times as Mayor de Blasio's secret weapon, while earning the reputation as one of the smartest and most well-respected officials in this administration. Emma previously served in the administration as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. Prior to that, she served as the Deputy Campaign Manager and Political Director for Mayor de Blasio's mayoral campaign and Chief of Staff to the Mayor while he was Public Advocate. During our interview with Emma, she spoke to us about her unique relationship with the mayor and what it is like to serve as Chief of Staff to the Mayor of New York City. We hope you enjoy our conversation just as much as we did. I now want to welcome a dear friend to City Hall Pass, the immensely talented Emma Wolf. Emma, you, I think I've told you this, you're one of the inspirations for City Hall Pass. Um, You know, on its best days, I hope this podcast will inspire our fellow New Yorkers in large part by giving them a behind the scenes look at the exceptionally talented people that work here. And having spent the majority of my career in public service, I can say definitively, there are no colleagues that have inspired me more in government than you. You are no doubt a political genius, but your humility and kindness is legendary. In the words of the mayor, quote, Emma could be very tough, but I don't know anyone who doesn't like Emma. I don't know anyone who doesn't respect Emma. End of quote. I resoundingly second that view. And now without further ado, I want to give a very warm City Hall Pass welcome to the Deputy Mayor of Administration and Chief of Staff to the Mayor, Emma Wolf. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for doing this. We know how busy you are, and we really appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time. Emma, let, let's, let's start with, uh, you know, everyone talks about your relationship, not only with the mayor, but with people generally here in government. How did you meet the mayor? So I think I probably formally met him in 2009, but there were a few other places where may have interacted. I mean, he was very much seen as the sort of uh, leader in a lot of like the sort of institutional left kind of circles that I was in really just cutting my teeth in as a, uh, a young organizer. So my first job out of college, I worked for the now, it is, it is, it is no longer 
organization it was, but we're seeing association, community organizations were formed now as ACORN for the first few years after college. That's where I worked, and it was a real transformative experience for me. And that's where I did my first uh, real political campaign, which was the 2001 mayor's race in the field. And field operation was um, really sort of fundamental experience for, for, for me. There were a lot of campaigns that were being run out of that office, grassroots campaigns, including Build the Blog for City Council, 2001 campaign. So you'd always see him around the office and um, you know his team, and they were the hardest workers around. And he was, uh, you know, famously notoriously hard driving with his team, and you knew that you were getting the best kind of public servant and, and campaigner in him. And I was certainly aware of him from then on. And I think actually invited him and had him come and speak at some sessions I was doing with emerging leaders who were considering running for office uh, years later when I was working for the Working Families Party in advance of the sort of big election in 2009 when the city council changed over and we got a whole bunch of progressive folks in office, including Bill de Blasio, public advocate, and John, city comptroller, um, and a whole lot of uh, insurgents in the city council. And he then, council member Bill de Blasio, came and spoke at a, a class for my career has directed as he's gone forward. But then in 2009, I was working on a campaign with Alyssa Barreras for city council. It was a special election. It was a great campaign. Uh, really bonded with Alyssa on that campaign. It was uh, a wild ride. Um, and he uh, would show up, uh, I believe, at that point. Yeah, he was considering his next run and he was doing what good candidates do, which is helping out city council candidates. and. Um, so we would hang out at the campaign office. And that's really where I started talking to him quite a bunch. Yeah, in 1999, 2000, I spent a semester at the University of Chicago, and one of my professors was Barack Obama. Wow. And, and, and I remember that as you're talking. The reason I remember that is because when I saw Barack Obama the president, and I think back to Barack Obama the professor, it, it seemed very much the same. His mannerisms, the way he talked, the way he talked to the American public was very similar to the way he talked to the 22 students in his class. And so when you go back to that time when you knew Bill de Blasio before he became the mayor of New York City, when you see him talk to people today, does he remind you of the same man you met back in you know, 2009? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anybody who works for him knows he's got a tremendous attention for uh, detailing can be real hawkeye about information that you're presenting when he has to make a decision, etc. So all of those things, the sort of demand for rigor um, and very high standards no matter the situation, which honestly is like a really, res- I, I, there's, there's a sort of respectful, like you are, you are expected to, to be the best that you can be at, at your profession, and that's what he demands. When you started working for him, did you envision him becoming mayor at some point? Because, you know, when I think about Barack Obama, I thought he was great. But I don't think I ever envisioned that he'd become president. At that time, he was in the middle of a state senate race. I don't think anyone in that room said, this is a future president in the waiting. You know, I don't know if I would have thought that if I hadn't been working for him. I mean, um, starting in 09, I worked for him on the campaign and then from there on was working for him. So immediately when he was 
becoming, we talked about as one of a handful of mayoral contenders, I was on his team. And I become a little bit sort of short-sighted about my work sometimes. And uh, there's good and bad to that. But I just didn't spend a lot of time, once he became a mayoral contender, I did not spend a lot of time envisioning him in the role or envisioning me here at City Hall or any of that stuff. I just became much more fixated on the job at hand. So for better or worse, because I sort of remember like being shocked in like the fall of, of 2013. It was all happening. It was clear he was about to win. And I was completely, yeah, the, it was like a brand new thought that occurred to me, even though we had all been working at afford this goal for so long. So it's hard for me to say because of that, I don't know, limitation how I think of that. Hey there, and thanks for listening to City Hall Pass. Did you know that New York State recently updated their guidance regarding out-of-state travel? Well, as of November 4th, out-of-state travelers coming into New York can test out of the mandatory 14-day quarantine. For travelers who were in another state for more than 24 hours, here's how you can test out. First, you must obtain a test within three days of departure from that state. Next, upon arrival in New York, you then must quarantine for three days. And finally, on the fourth day of your quarantine in New York, you must obtain another COVID test. If both tests come back negative, you can exit quarantine early. And remember, if you're coming into New York from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, or Vermont, you do not need to quarantine. For more details on this travel advisory, including international travel guidelines, visit our website at nyc.gov slash council to the mayor and read through our traveler restrictions FAQ. Thanks for listening. Emma, you're, you're really excellent at management and I see that every single day when we work together. There's no better manager around here than you. I think that has a lot to do with the relationships you have with people and the fact that you're so trustworthy. Do you think that's the key to your management style? So trustworthiness, I think, is very important, of course. Um, and that's certainly something I've learned from a lot of the people who brought me in along the way. I feel like I've benefited a lot from dynamics with my mentors and managers over the years where I felt like um, they were the meaning of me, but there was also a safe space for me to be able to, especially when I was younger, probably ventilating a lot more than I should have with them, um, looking back on it. But they allowed for a safe space to do that, which I think was, was good and healthy, but I think it's balance. I think it's also more about, you know, you identify the right people for the right roles, put them, you know, get the right group of folks in there in the right seats on the bus, and then you let them thrive. And I have found here who I think are best at management, and then in politics sometimes you get folks who actually just continuously throughout their careers just seem to feel competitive with their own staff and colleagues. I think that is a real limitation it never occurred to me to articulate this until being here at City Hall, but I remember really growing at some point in the first term and saying to myself, while well, I was trying to hire for a bunch of schools, I, I need to hire a bunch of folks who are going to be or, or are better than me at XYZ or, or is a total package. That was really liberating, and it also is a good way to manage folks because you want them to be ambitious and you want them to feel like you want their success. I think something that's meant a lot to me during my time here is oftentimes in my role, I feel like I'm on an island. Right. And 
there are countless times when we get off phone calls with various people where we've had a tough phone call and I'll get a call from you just saying something to the effect of hang in there. It's all good. I wonder if you know how much that means because getting something like that from you, it it sort of just refills the gas tank and it makes me feel very not only trusted and and worthy of the position that I'm in, but your continued faith and recognition that, look, I know this is tough, but I've got you is not only inspiring, but as I said, it keeps my tank full in a job that, as you know, we work 24 seven. And I don't know if you know that, but as a management technique, I found it to be brilliant. No, no, I appreciate that. I think you do it too. And there's definitely a group of folks here who I feel like, you know, I see them doing it with each other. I do it with them. They do it for me. And, you know, if it's real time feedback when we're all in a meeting or a conference call together or, um, no reflections afterward. I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. And it is easy. I think everyone to a degree, certainly COVID has magnified this, but I think everyone to a degree in these kinds of jobs, you do feel sometimes a little bit of, you know, I'm alone in this, or, you know, you run the risk of feeling sort of isolated and like, you know, the, the stress can get you, et cetera. So in some ways COVID has exacerbated that, right? Because it it's just a more isolating experience for everyone. But then you become so much more tethered to the colleagues who you're kind of in the bunker with. Um, and you lean on them a lot more. Last night I was thinking about the randomness that comes about in choosing a career. When I was a kid, I liked to do two things, talk and watch football. Um, you, you, you know how much I like to talk, Emma, so that, and so does the mayor. Now I get paid to do it. And I thought for sure I would be a football announcer because I, I would get to talk a lot. But obviously due to cultural pressures, those dreams unfortunately never, never, never happen. If you could have picked a career outside of politics, what do you think you would do? Oh, boy. Well, my mom and my sister, and to a degree, my brother, they were all in working artists for the arts and communications. But I always thought if I had to change careers, I would be happy to be a supportive player in that kind of industry. And so I would think about like, okay, let me maybe like start as like a production assistant on a set, and then maybe I can move over there. There's a big operational component to that industry. Like I know anything about it, but I don't know, I would daydream about that or working for one of the unions that represented working artists. So I don't know, something to support that. That was always my life. It still remains. Is that something that I could do if I had to leave this kind of life? I feel like of the people I've met who aren't lawyers, who I think would be good lawyers, you're at the top of the list because you're able to absorb enormous amounts of information from disparate sources and put it together. And I think as a litigator, that's our job. We're not specialists in any given subject, but when we get a subject, we've got to become the expert in the room on that area. And you do that every single day with issues stemming from law enforcement to homelessness and everything in between. And I think it's an exceptional talent. And so if you ever decide you want to go to the law school, there will no one, there's no one that would give you a higher recommendation than me, Emma. Hey, I'm a terrible student, so I'm not going to go back to school um, for anything ever. But uh, I would also say, I, I don't think it's just a lot of that skill set that people all have to, I think the folks who are successful in the jobs around here, sort of senior cabinet positions for City Hall and commissioners, mm-hmm. et cetera, 
I think they all have to have that skill set to a degree, where you're, you're becoming a momentary expert on something that people who work for you um, uh, have spent their lives being experts at, right? And you have to like be able to, and I, I, I am certainly, I have just observed some folks in city government do this who are fairly well, like, take in a bunch of information, ask the right questions, distill it down, understand that while they may not have the best political or press analysis, they're going to ask the right questions, and then they become a momentary expert, and they, and they have to be generalists to a degree. Emma, you're deputy mayor for administration and chief of staff to the mayor. The scope of any high-profile chief of staff role is usually determined by the principal, which in your case is the mayor. When you became chief of staff, what was your vision for this role? What were your priorities? And how much of that vision, how much of that those priorities came from the mayor? I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever distinguished between the two. Because the, the job of a chief of staff is to optimize your boss's performance and his decision-making in this case. So that was for me, how do I create that environment so that he is able to perform to the best of his abilities in any given day, as we all know and we see, especially during COVID, pre-COVID too, you're never getting a decision that's easy. You're never dealing with an issue where everyone's happy it's always gonna be the most difficult decisions that are coming to you when you're mayor. And you don't get to choose when you visit those decisions, right? Like once in a while, somebody brings something to you and it doesn't have a, an external kind of pressure or timeline, but most of the time, there's a reason why it's being brought to you and you don't get the luxury of time. And how exactly do you create that environment to optimize you know, the mayor's ability to perform and make decisions? I mean, a lot of prep work, a lot of work that me and my team, I mean, I have like tremendous staff and deputies who just work all day long with leaders in the admin, as you guys know, whether it's city hall uh, staff, mayors, commissioners, to shape information, challenge, and prepare a presentation. So yeah, a lot of prep work. In 2022, there'll be a new administration a new chief of staff to a new mayor, um, and new deputy mayors. What advice would you give your successors? I think what we were talking about earlier in terms of picking your team and picking the folks who, and that, you know, at any moment you're not able to be here, who are you putting in your place? And I just, you know, can't say it enough, and I can't say enough how many times I've seen with disappointment folks in politics think the most important thing for them to do is to prove their own worth above everyone else. And if you have that mentality, you are going to fail at your job. You may not publicly fail at it, but you're going to fail at what you should be doing. So I think that's incredibly important. It's not easy. And it's, you know, God knows nowadays, some people might look at what happens in government and politics and public service and think like, you know, is that the, is that the life I want? Is that the scrutiny I want? Are those the kinds of fights and conflicts I want? But... Anybody who's up for it, if you can get gamers on your team and people who, you know, maybe want your job, do it. So I think that's really important. Understanding the way your principal thinks and deliberates does not mean that the principal is always going to agree with you. And it's, in fact, not your job to be a mere reflection of your boss's uh, mentality when it comes to the outcome or the decision. What... What you do have to understand is the kind of information 
the amount of information, the way it's presented as best as you can. So really spending time on that, um, I think is very important. Your job is not to be right. Um, your job is to set the mayor and the administration to make the best decisions on behalf of the workers. Did you know that every two seconds, someone needs blood? New York City currently has an alarming shortage of blood donations. Donating is fast, easy, and a great way to support your fellow New Yorkers. To donate, visit a New York Blood Center location near you. Call 1-800-933-2566 or go to nybc.org and make a difference today. Thanks for listening. COVID has greatly affected New York City and me personally and professionally. Obviously, there's no law school course that prepares you for how to respond to a global pandemic. And actually, this morning, I'm really into spinning, and I was at a socially distanced outdoor spin class, and it was just a struggle today. I did not think I had it in me, and we were doing an uphill spin. And the instructor was like, think of a moment in your life where you've had to be strong and overcome something. And, you know, in the past few months, I never thought we could work seven days a week, the crazy hours we had to work. And so that actually, COVID actually has changed me in that way because it's made me stronger. How has the crisis changed you personally or professionally? When I was also, I mean, I think you guys know this because you would see me walking out of City Hall sometimes growing out in my very appropriate outfit for whatever <laughs> gym class I had. And I was doing that really religiously and was a big part of life. And there were a bunch of things like that that, like, obviously, we needed to change all the time. Not only were we all working all the time, but, like, the things that brought us some joy and that were sort of our routines in life all got upended. And me, just like anybody else, had those things that I was so attached to. You know, whether it was like I would take care of a couple of dogs that I used to go beat out of every month. That was gone. I would, and they brought me joy. I was no longer going extra classes with, you know, my friends. That brought me joy. But then the wonderful thing was you start to develop new routines as you head. Now you go to outdoor classes or I work out every morning and save a bunch of money. But no, so all that rambling aside... Personally, it's been very, very difficult. It affected my family. I mentioned before the, the industry that they're in, their lives were upended um, in the first week of COVID. The, you know, once a week, you guys, I think, knew this too, because I would talk about them all the time, that I had to see my sister and I got to take care of my niece and nephew, and they had to immediately leave the city. And I didn't need to see them for six months. And, and but then the wonderful thing was, like, they had their help. And, like, you constantly are sort of toggling. I know everyone who I talk to, we're in such privileged positions. We get to wake up every day and we get to actually do work that's meaningful. And it's high pressure, but my God, like, I mean, you get to wake up every day and do work that's meaningful. How lucky are you compared to so many people who have to wake up every day and they're like, because they're gone. I felt that up close with the, my family who are all such hard workers and you know, they didn't have easy lives to begin with. Being a working artist, it was something they were committed to and loved, and suddenly that was just evaporated. Seeing them pick up the pieces and figure out how to keep marching forward was really, really, really inspiring and a good reminder to me, because all I had to do every day was just keep doing the job that I was doing. So no, I mean, just like anyone else, I'm mindful that I'm, uh, I've got my family's health. I get to see them now a little bit more, and I remind myself whenever I get too down that we're all going to look back, hopefully knock on wood, and feel so much stronger for it, just as you said, Kate. That, there, there were a couple of slogans. One was, I'm going to be stronger for this, and we're going to be stronger for this, and the city is going to be stronger for it somehow, um, which I still firmly believe. Emma Wolf, 
the mayor at the end of a recent press conference said, quote, I could not tell you everything I feel and I believe in about Emma Wolf unless I kept you here all day. I agree 100%. No matter how long I stay here, no matter how much I opine about how terrific you are, I couldn't fit it all in. So I just want to say it's a privilege to work with you every day. I think on behalf of all our colleagues and the people of New York, we're really lucky to have you here. And the work that you put in every day on behalf of New Yorkers, all 9 million of them, the stories that you just told, I hope that give people a sense of how much this job means to you and how much you carry each and every one of our fellow New Yorkers in your heart and your job every single day. And so uh, without further ado, thank you so much, Emma, for joining us. We, well, we love, we love you, and I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you. And that's why we do this podcast, to get the best possible public servants in New York City to open up about who they are and what they do. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Emma Wolf as much as we did. I thank Emma for her candor and insight. I hope you found it fascinating to learn about her unique relationship with the mayor and her outlook on leadership and management. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of City Hall Pass. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of the Council to the Mayor of New York City with support from the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. Special thanks to our executive producer, Stathi, and a big thank you to Karen, Roland, Jenna, and Andrew from the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. We couldn't do this without you.